Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. It is a Wednesday night. And it is time for Friends in Fiction. We have an incredible night ahead for you. Another do not miss. Tonight, our Kristen has a previous obligation, but we are incredibly honored because we have a surprise co-host with us, the author John Searles. We'll talk more about him in a bit. I am Patty Callahan. Thank you. I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. And you say, and I am John Searles. Oh, I think he's. Oh, and I am John Searles. I'm sorry. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) Um, John, we mess that up every episode, and we've done like 180. We mess it up all the time. I won't feel too bad. I won't feel too bad. No. And this is Friends in Fiction, Mm -hmm. four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores authors, and librarians. Tonight, not only are we welcoming Marie Bostwick and Tara Shelton Harris to talk about their newest novels, but like I said, we also have John Searles co-hosting with us. John is an old dear friend of mine. He's the best-selling author of four thrillers, including Help for the Haunted, Boy Still Missing, and Strange But True, which is what, which was adapted to the big screen in 2019 by Lionsgate, starring Amy Ryan, Greg Kinnear, and Brian Cox. You may remember John from when he had visited us here on Friends in Fiction to discuss his most recent psychological thriller, Her Last Affair, which is now out in paperback. So buy his book, damn it. <laughs> if you didn't get it when he Thank was here, you, my dear. now is the time again. So he was the former books editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine. And John is a frequent on-air. I know you're TV. expecting more cleavage when you hear that. <laughs> Well, when you say Cosmo, we expect a lot more. So I don't know. Yeah. You could exactly. you could still do it. Like it's not too late, I don't yeah. think. Good try. Yeah. There you go. And he is also a frequent on-air contributor to the Today Show. In fact, if you go over to his Instagram feed to enter his giveaways of his summer reads Rex from his most recent Today Show segment. John is also notably the father to the Instagram famous golden doodle, Ruby. You can follow her on her own personal Instagram at, oh my God, it's Ruby. And I might stalk her over there because I think she would be an excellent match for my first son, Salt, and you know how meddling mothers are. So, you know, I have to check out what she's doing. So anyway, welcome, John. We are so thrilled that you could join us on such a short notice to pinch hit in the Kristen chair. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's nice to be here. Well, we love this community. And since the beginning, we've been here to bring you author interviews and hot reads, all while also supporting independent bookstores. One yay, one way, one gay way. You can one gay way, one gay I have not had any wine tonight, I'll have you know. One way you can help us support indies is to buy from them when and where you can or to visit our own friendsandfictionbookshop.org page where you can find Marie's and Tara's and John's books and ours all at a discount. John, uh, and you're speaking up. of amazing books, don't forget to join... I, I said, speaking of amazing books, don't forget to join the Friends in Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa on their Facebook page and join them on July, I'm sorry, yes, July 17th when they'll be discuss, discussing The Paris Daughter. You knew that book, the instant New York Times bestseller with Friends in Fiction's very own Kristen Harmel, played by me this evening, but she'll be playing herself <laughs> on July 17th. <laughs> 
Yay! And I can't believe it, but the Summer of Songbirds is releasing in less than a week. Oh my goodness, but who's counting? Yeah. I'll be mm-hmm. in Nantucket, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey, and all over North and South Carolina on tour. And of course, in Tampa with my Friends in Fiction crew. So check out all of the tour dates on christywoodsonharvey.com and come say hi in person. If you still need a signed, personalized copy, Nantucket Books is taking pre-orders that include an exclusive Camp KWH fanny pack. You can see me very stupidly modeling on Instagram. It holds my dog treats. And um, it also includes lots of other swag. So check it out if you need a book still. Um, And if you haven't bought the book yet, today is the day. Today is the day to get it. So thank you. I loved it. It was so full of such nostalgia and sweetness. And it made me feel that feeling I had when I was a kid, that the world was just waiting for me, which it actually wasn't. So now Now, without much further ado, let us welcome Marie Bostwick. Marie is a USA Today and New York Times bestselling author of uplifting historical and women's fiction, including popular, the popular Cobbled Court Quilt and Too Much Texas. I love that series of books. Drawing on her lifelong love of quilting and her unshakable belief in the power of sisterhood, Marie's Cobbled Court Quilt series has been embraced by quilters and non-sewers alike. Her standalone books have also found a passionate following among lovers of women's fiction. Her novel, The Second Sister, was even adapted into the 2018 Hallmark Hall of Fame feature film, Christmas Everlasting, starring Patti LaBelle. Wow. I heard Patti, I'm like, what? What did I star in? (laughs) (laughs) So Marie lives in Washington state with her husband and a beautiful but moderately spoiled Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. When she's not curled up with a good book, she can usually be found in her office trying to write one. She is also the co-host of 10 Minute Book Talk on Instagram and Facebook with our pals, Rachel Linden and Catherine Ray. Her new novel, Esme Cahill Fails Spectacularly, was published on May 30th and we are so excited to talk to her about it. Juan, can you bring Marie on to join us, please? Hi, everybody. We are so happy to have you. Thanks for joining us. Where are you right now? Remind us. Uh, I am in Missouri. I am in Hamilton, Missouri. Wow. And you're at a quilter's haven, aren't you? It is. Yes. This is known as Quilt Town USA. So the home of the Missouri Star Quilt Company. And there's like... 13 quilt shops in this little tiny town. It's amazing. Unbelievable. So extra luggage. So, well, we love talking about quilting and that's a beautiful one behind you, but we are here to talk about Esme Cahill. So I love that there is a quote that says, if you love Southern summer fiction authors like Christy Woodson Harvey, you will love this delicious novel about family, friendship, and finding your true path. So before we dive into your novel, I thought we would talk about summer reading and what that even means. Your novel is set at a family-owned North Carolina lake, and it got me thinking, how do we even define summer reading? What does that mean to each of us? I think it probably means more than what the book industry calls a summer read. So how about you, Christy? I mean, obviously, we all know that summer begins with MKA, so that's like... (laughs) You know what? Funnily enough, though, I tend to read a lot of thrillers and like creepier things during the summer. Yeah, I just I give myself more time to read during the summer. And so if I'm like on the beach or by the pool or something during the day, I feel like I can read those things without having nightmares. I'm like I'm like very sensitive. (laughs) Like everything is happening to me that's happening in the book. So um, it's funny because I tend to read a lot of that during the summer. But then also, of course, you know, um, I think just anything that can kind of take you away and keep the pages turning is a perfect summer read. Okay. How about you, MKA? Oh, you're muted. You have to unmute, my friend. Yeah, my mic is giving me fits, everybody. Um, I read a little bit of everything in the summertime. I'm always trying to catch up with the stuff I missed 
um, during the previous year. Um, I do read some more thrillers and some mystery. And I like some lighthearted stuff. Um, your typical beach reads. I'm kind of all over the map. And sometimes I'll just see um, uh, a story about somebody or see somebody on air. And um, then I'll decide to read it. So I never know what, what I'll be in the mood for. How about you, John? How would you define a summer read, especially since you got to pick some? Like, what would you call a summer read? Yeah. Well, you know how real estate agents always say location, location, location. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like for me, summer reading is about the location. Like with Esme Cahill, Fail Spectacular, I love it's that on a lake, a lake house. So I like a good summery setting, which is why many of your books on Friends and Fiction work really well. And Christy, that's why I love your new cover so much. It looks really summery and beautiful. Summer camp. Uh, and then it's funny, I'm sort of the opposite of you, Christy. Like I write thriller books and I read more thrillery books all year long. And then in the summer, I want something just a little more lighthearted and escapist. So kind of opposite of you in that way. Well, it's very funny. Like you write, you write opposite and then you read opposite in the summer. You're like the opposite of twinsies. So Marie, how about you? Like, how would you define a summer read? Well, I mean, a lot of the things everybody said, I, I like something lighter in the summer. I like something with a, if not a totally happy, at least a hopeful ending, yeah. you know? And I also, the setting is important, but I also think some of the reason we talk about summer reading is we do have a little more time. The days are just longer, right? Yeah. So yeah. we can devote a little more time. And I know so many teachers who like save their reading, you know, that is reading season for them. So lots of different reasons, but I think we're all kind of, it's like one of those things, you know it when you see it, right? Oh, mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. For me, it's anything immersive. I can tell you my worst summer read, 1978 or so, 1976, Cape Cod, Jaws. Big huh. mistake, oh, big Jesus. mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a summer ruiner. <laughs> but I mean, I remember reading the Thornbirds on a beach over a full summer as a teen. And I doubt anyone calls that a beach or summer read. So I think it's anything we dive into, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Marie, let's dive into talking about this great book, Esme Cahill Fails Spectacularly. Did you guys see I said that word all right? Yeah, you got it. I know. It's a totally charming novel about a woman whose life isn't going according to plan. She escapes back to the Asheville Resort, where she was raised at the request of her grandmother, who, after asking her to come home, whoops, dies. So Esme comes home to find some concerning changes, a mystery she didn't even know she needed to unravel, and quite possibly a way back to herself. So that's what the book is about. But what we want to hear from you is what it's really about? All right. Well, the title gives you a pretty good clue. Um, you know, fail spectacularly. Obviously, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but not really. And I think that's why it's such a good title, because there's not anybody who hasn't had a moment when they felt like they were failing spectacularly. I think it is, you know, the human condition at some point. But and I've written about this kind of thing, uh, maybe less directly, but several times in my books, because I, I really have come to believe over my life that sometimes those moments when we feel like we're failing or we're just sidelined or blocked or some in some way being prevented from getting to the thing we want, that actually might be a chance for us to pivot. And we might end up finding something we didn't know. I mean, so in my opinion, Failure can be the on-ramp to the life you're meant to live. Um, and that is one of the big points for me in this book. I think that's one of the major things it's about. What a line. Failure can be the on-ramp for the life you're meant to live. Heard it Christy and I always, always say that. I have worked on that line. <laughs> great. Christy and I always say, uh, sometimes a rejection is a protection. And that right. feels like the same. same. It's true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Well, Marie, the Asheville Resort setting is so vivid and luscious in this novel. It's always been a classic rustic spot that isn't too fancy or overblown, talking about Asheville. But when Esme returns, she finds this resort in a bit of disrepair. 
What inspired you to set this novel in Asheville? And were you thinking of a specific hotel or resort when you wrote it? You know, I, um, I, I was, I, this was a funny book. This was my COVID book. So I had some struggles with it. And part of that was because I couldn't travel and do the kind of research I've normally done. Now I've been to Asheville. I've been everywhere. I have lived, uh, I think we've lived in, we counted it the other day, like 10 different states. And I've had more than 20 addresses. I think it's actually 25. My husband says less, but he's wrong. Uh, <laughs> and so it has turned out to be like kind of the ideal resume for a writer because I have lived in every region of the country. So, but when I was writing the book, I kept, I couldn't go to those places. So originally I thought, well, maybe Maine and that didn't work. Finally, as I was on about my, I don't know, you know, fifth or sixth rewrite of the book, I was um, on tour promoting another book of mine, The Restoration of Celia Fairchild, which is set in Charleston. And I ended up doing an event at Lake Lure. And I kind of went like, this is the place. Because it had some of the things that I really love in a book. You know, Asheville has a very distinct character. And so I love that. I love a town that is like, is almost a character within itself. Also that incredible mountain setting. I'm so inspired by nature in a lot of my books and my personal life, so that was huge. And then of course, Asheville has long had this reputation as being a haven for artists. And yeah. you know, in a book that's about people who are struggling artistically, it just seemed like this had all the things that I wanted. So, and plus- Also, Asheville has really good pancakes, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Very good I just remember Very good my husband my husband's a theater director and he was trying out some show down there and I found this restaurant that had the best pancakes I couldn't button my pants but the time I was driving home from Asheville I ate so many pancakes sorry I just had to say that great <laughs> for sure for sure that's funny oh. <laughs> and you're up my friend uh, yeah, so no spoilers here, but one of Esme's major goals in the novel becomes getting her grandmother, who was a talented artist, her due after her death. And Esme comes back to the lake after her being fired from her publishing job and her divorce. This is part of her failing spectacularly. And uh, at the request of her late grandmother, and she feels like she has a bit of a puzzle to unravel here about exactly why her grandmother wanted her to come back to the lake. Her grandmother's art becomes a huge piece of the puzzle and an inspiration to Esme as well. So we're wondering, is there a message here about the power of family ties even after death or maybe the ways our ancestors past direct our own paths in life? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We all stand on the shoulders of the people who came before. Um, and sometimes, you know, hopefully we live and learn from their example, but sometimes we live and learn from their mistakes too and the way we shouldn't be. Um, so one of my very favorite things about this book, which even though it was a struggle, I've come to love this story so much, is that Esme has an opportunity to right some of the old wrongs because her grandmother was incredibly wise, but you know that wisdom takes time to develop and while she was, her wisdom meant a lot to Esme growing up, Esme has this opportunity to see as she kind of pulls on this thread and unravels this story within the story to realize that her grandmother was just human. And, mm. and so I don't want to give things away, but it's just, it's such a great ending. I'm so excited. <laughs> she awesome. does have this opportunity well, to right an old wrong. And that made me very happy as a writer. It's well. Speaking of threads, I see that quilt behind you. With it, it looks like it has a price tag on it. The quilt is. Are you selling that? It's not um, a price tag. But, <laughs> explaining where the tutorial is, but. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, I I just wanted to know, like, or I wanted to mention that, like Esme's grandmother, you're a quilter, as you said. You're at this quilting place, and how did your own knowledge of quilting come into this novel? Into this novel. Well, I mean, because I have been quilting for a long, long time. You know, I started out, I mean, I'm so old, I used to sew my own clothes. That's what it's, but I know I don't look it, but it's like great face cream, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, when 
Yeah. When I was a little girl, I sewed my clothes. And then when I was in my early 20s, I had two little children. And I was at that stage in life where if I would go to the bathroom, they would sob hysterically on the other side of the door till I came out. And I loved them. But I needed something for myself. And that turned out to be quilting. So it was an easy leap to make from garment sewing to quilting. And I just found it to be incredibly expressive and artistic. Um, and I am a hobby quilter of like enormous enthusiasm and moderate talent. But quilting was such a beautiful metaphor for me because I think about life. You know, if you think about life, you just get handed this big bunch of scraps, right? You don't necessarily have a choice. There are weird colors and weird shapes. And this is what you've got. And it's your job in your life to make them come together in a way that makes sense and hopefully is beautiful and useful. So I have used that metaphor over and over again in my work. But in this case, I really have used it more to write about the struggle of artists. Um, and I just think that's an important subject because I believe everybody is an artist at some level. So one of my missions on earth is to encourage people to embrace and celebrate their inner child artist. I love that. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. Well, Marie, I have to say two things. First of all, well, you know, I loved this book because I got a really early read and I got to blur. No, and you were so sweet. So great. Um, and I had to tell you, so I was picturing this like kind of version of the Lake Lure Inn while I was reading the book. So um, that, so that was great. I was like, oh, good. Um, and then also I think I love the way that kind of the world works and the universe brings us these stories because I was working on the wedding veil at the same time that you were working on Esme Cahill, right. also set in Asheville. And one of the things that struck me while I was reading it, one of the reasons that Asheville is such an amazing artist colony and community is because all of the work that Edith Vanderbilt did to bring those kind of homegrown arts and crafts movements to Asheville. So anyway, when I was reading it, I was like, I love this. Cause it's like, it's like you can go way back and then like see how all that work still exists today. So that was kind of cool, but that's not my question for you. That was okay. just some <laughs> so one of the major themes of this novel, as your title implies, is that sometimes it takes falling and failing in a pretty large and maybe even a pretty public way to redefine where we actually want to be. So I'm just wondering if there's anything in your own life journey that contributed to Esme's story and whether there is or not, um, what do you hope readers will take away from this story? Oh, well, you know, look, as writers, I mean, maybe it's different for you, but I don't know a single writer who hasn't had to deal with failure and rejection and all those things. And it's, it's hard, you know, and as I was, Esme originally wants to think she's going to be a writer and she gets 263 rejection letters. And she says at one point, sort of tongue in cheek, you know, who would have guessed I have such an infinite capacity for humiliation. Um, but I really felt for her because I remember being that, you know, not yet published writer, and you'd send off your thing, and you're so hopeful, and that envelope would come, and you're thinking, this is going to be the one, and you would open it, and it would be another, yet another thanks, no thanks form letter, and how heartbreaking that was. But all of us experienced some of that, and so really what I hope readers take away from this more than anything, well, first of all, I just hope they enjoy it, right? My first job as an author is just to entertain people, and, and that's a good thing to do because, you know, life is hard, but fiction doesn't have to be. So that's great. I get to like lean into putting people in a hopeful place and, and hopefully a thoughtful place by the time I'm done. But beyond that, I really do want to just kind of put my arm around readers and say, you know what, maybe baby, you're feeling like you're failing right now, but this is not the end of the story. Good things are ahead. Maybe you need to pivot maybe the universe is sending you a message and like great stuff is ahead of you. Just hang in there and keep at it. That's it. It's not real deep, but it's important. I love that. Speaking of messages, um, Marie, I think all of the book obsessed children within all of us relate to the line in your bio. Marie Botswick was Bostwick was born and raised in the Northwest where being an overweight and socially awkward child, she collected a whole closet full of imaginary friends that are, 
with her to this day. So how did your childhood reading journey affect the writer you are today? Oh my gosh, so much. And I think that's true of, you know, I used to get in trouble for reading too much. Seriously, my mom would be angry with me and she'd be like, go out and play, meet other children. I did not need to meet other children. I was best friends with Pippi Longstocking and Laura Wilder. Why would I need to meet those people out there? But you know, like books were so, it was just my, my passion. And I really was a socially awkward child. By the way, I am still a socially awkward adult, so that has not changed. You are not. But it's all, you know, I'm embracing my nerdiness as I get older. It's all good. Um, So, yeah, I think, you know, and I tell people over and like the best way to learn to write is just read and read and read and read. And of course, as you are writing more seriously, you study people's technique, you see what worked and didn't work for you. So you can develop your own style. But I think if you're reading a lot, especially as a child, you just absorb what good writing is. And, and, and I don't know that you're conscious of it, but you just know how it feels and tastes and, and how when a book wraps around you, um, it changes lives. And of course, later, I mean, hopefully it inspires you to want to be one of those people who gets to do that. There's nothing I would be rather doing with my life right now than writing. And all those books I read as a kid um, were part of that. I feel so inspired, Marie. I know. Thank you. Whole episode. I'm like, ha, huh, everything she says is like a sound bite. It's fantastic. <laughs> Mary Kay's the one who's probably taking notes. She writes down all the good stuff. Like <laughs> she's just writing around. I mean, it's just good stuff over here. All right, Marie. You have been an incredible guest, but before we let you go, can you please tell everyone where to find you online? Because I know you are out there on the road. So where can they find you in real life and online? Right. Well, I'm, you know, pretty much my, uh, some of my book tour is mostly wrapped up. So I'm excited about sleeping in my own bed soon. Um, But if you go to my website, mariebostwick.com, you will find my calendar. I also do, I'm like, Um, gift giving is my love language. So I have lots of goodies for people on my website. I like to do um, recipes that go with my books. And for quilters, I sometimes do companion patterns for them even. So that's kind of a fun thing and people can download them. All you have to do is give me your email address. And then, and so what's beautiful about that is not only you'll get the recipes and the patterns, you will get free junk email for me for the rest of your life. So there's that, right? I mean, really, I am, it's a gift that keeps on giving is what I'm telling you. Um, I also, oh, I'm, I'm so awesome. you guys. I've been on the road a long time. I'm getting punchy. Um, I also have a blog called Fiercely Marie, and this is my lifestyle blog. I originally started it, it was called Fierce Beyond 50, because I turned 50 and like people were sort of, okay, get off the stage now. And I said, um, I don't think so. I just got here. So I started a blog mostly because I was mad, but then I had a lot of people who weren't in their fifties who were coming. So now it's just called Fiercely Marie. I love to cook. There's lots of recipes. There's lots of, you know, free advice, which my mother always says is what you pay for it. But uh, travel (laughs) tips, book tips. And then of course, as you mentioned, we do the lazy, Rachel Linden and Catherine Ray and I do the lazy woman's version of Friends in Fiction called the 10 minute book talk. It's like, it's just 10 minutes. So it's like, it's so much less work than what you guys do. But we're on Facebook with that. And that's been a lot of fun. I've met so many authors and I've, I've gotten to read so many books that I might've missed otherwise. So those are, and I'm on Facebook and Instagram and I don't do TikTok because I just, I don't know. I don't have enough talk to tick anymore. So those are <laughs> Same. That's it. Same. None of us have any talk. Trust <laughs> us. No talk. Oh, Marie, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, and congratulations on your novel. Thank and you, guys. This was so great. I appreciate congratulations, it. Marie. Thanks, Thanks Marie. We love tight, Marie. All right, see ya. All right, everyone. She's hilarious. She makes me smile like my cheeks. Like she's yeah. adorable. So funny. 
All right. We're really excited to get to Tara Shelton Harris to talk about one summer in Savannah. But first, a few quick messages from us, because it's not every year that all four of us have new novels being released. But this was one of those years. It sure was. It's a fab year for the four of us. See, you see what I did there? I did. I did. <laughs> I know. So freaking clever. With Kristen's and Patty's books just out and Christy's coming out next week and mine coming out in September. Um, to celebrate, we have even more live in-person events coming up. And this crew has already been in pancake hunting, I hope, in Columbus, Charleston, <laughs> Huntsville together. And coming up, they'll be in Tampa, Florida on July 20th at Oxford Exchange. I love that store to celebrate the summer yeah. of songbirds. Congratulations. And in Christie's Neck of the Woods in Atlantic Beach, North Carolina for an August 1st breast cancer fundraiser. And last but absolutely not least, in Darien, Connecticut on October 4th for my dear pal, MKA's Bright Lights Big Christmas, a book which I had a sneak peek at already, and I actually have a cameo in the book. I'm a character in that book. Yeah, You're a character in real life, John. <laughs> <laughs> there is that too. Some have said, yes. <laughs> well, he just stole my next line because I was gonna say that John and his husband, uh -huh. Thomas, and their, oh, sorry. And, their <laughs> and their dog, Ruby, have a cameo in the book. All right, we're blacklisting him, ladies. He's on the no-fly list from now on. <laughs> <laughs> But you'll yeah. have to you'll have to hashtag buy my book, damn it, to see where John and Thomas and Ruby turn up in Bright Lights Big Christmas. And I already know because I read it. So it's awesome. Make sure you're signed up for our Friends in Fiction newsletter and for our individual newsletters so that you're the first to know more about all of our events. So I love talking about and reminding you about our Friday podcast, the Writer's Block podcast because it is so incredible and we've had some of the most fascinating guests from songwriters to librarians to storytellers so don't just tune in on Wednesday nights like you're doing right now but you can also find all four of us plus Meg and Ron interviewing storytellers and people who are in the storytelling world. We always post a link to the newest episode on the Facebook page or better yet you can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and you'll be notified with each new drop. On the most recent episode, which is out now, Ron and Meg talked to Christine Pride and Joe Piazza. I know Joe, I love her, about their new novel, You Were Always Mine. And this coming Friday, Ron and Meg will be chatting with Alex Hay about The Housekeepers. So listen, review, subscribe, and share with a friend if you like what you hear. All right, everyone. Now it is time for our next guest, Tara Shelton Harris. Tara is one of our favorite kinds of people because mm -hmm. she is a librarian and a freelance writer who now writes works of fiction with bittersweet endings. As a freelancer, her work has appeared in consumer and trade magazines, including Every Day with Rachel Ray. Cool. And Tara has worked as a librarian for over 15 years, and she's most proud of her Wi-Fi, I almost said wine in the park. Her wine in the park project. project. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good one. Uh, Wi-Fi in the park project, which provides free Wi-Fi to over 200 acres of Westgate Park. Originally from Illinois, she now lives in Alabama with her husband, Zamel. A world traveler, Tara has visited over 40 countries across six continents. Wow. wow. Her new novel, One Summer in Savannah, just released yesterday. Oh, don't you love that cover? It's just so stunning. Yeah. Um, Juan, can you please bring Tara on to join us? Hi, Tara. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi, Tara. It is so lovely to see you coming straight from Alabama, where we are having a heat wave that is crazy. It is. Mm. It is. It is so hot. I just came from Chicago and I was just basking in that nice and cool weather. And then I come back to the oven that is Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't even that cool. We were all in Chicago at the same time. And right. it wasn't, it was kind right. of, I thought it was kind of hot too, but you come back down here and you're like, Whoop. okay. Yeah. 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 Y'all yeah. will not believe it, but it's like 10 degrees cooler 
in North Carolina, like on the coast of North Carolina than it was in Chicago. Like I got to Chicago and I was like, it is a full 10 degrees. I thought it was going to be cooler. And I packed these like long sleeves and I was like, I'm going to perish in this. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's crazy. crazy. All right, Tara. So both of us live in Alabama, but aren't originally from there. <laughs> and both of us have written novels set in Savannah, as has our Mary Kay Andrews. So I'm really excited to chat about One Summer in Savannah. It's about a woman named Sarah who returns home with her daughter, returns home to Savannah with her daughter, who is the result of a terrifying assault and a daughter that she has kept a secret. But now she is back in Savannah and is falling for someone who might be, as you say, complicated, to say the least. Yeah. A man named Jacob, a man who is the brother of her assaulter. So that is what the book is about. That is what is on the back of the book. That is what is known. No spoilers, but what we really love to talk about and want to know from you is what you think the book is really about. I love this question because the book is really about forgiveness and it's about grief. So forgiveness is the main theme of the book, but grief serves as an undercurrent of the book and how people process grief. So. I wanted to write a book about forgiveness when my definition of forgiveness was challenged a few years ago um, after the South Carolina church shooting. You know, days after that tragic event, the survivors and their family members, they walked into that courthouse and they forgave the shooter. And in that moment, I realized I don't know anything about forgiveness because I assumed, like most people, that there were acts and crimes that was just unforgivable. But they taught me the opposite of that. And I knew then that I wanted to write a book about forgiveness, but mm -hmm. I didn't have a story yet. And so until one day, a really close friend of mine shared a story with me that I had never knew that she had conceived a child through sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And she used these words, she said, and I practice the act of forgiveness every day. Oh, and wow. I knew I had my story, mm -hmm. but I knew I wanted to just really have people read a book about what forgiveness looks like and like in real time and how you can move through something tragic happens to that place of forgiveness. I read um, in your note, in your author note, and I, I just loved this, that you said you wanted to challenge readers to look at how we as a reader define forgiveness. So it wasn't just for the characters or for you, but you wanted to challenge how we define forgiveness. That's and right. I tried not to think about it, but you do when you read this, you think about yeah. it. So. Right. You know, you know, Tara, I happened to be in Charleston not long after that shooting. And I took a walk around the block from my hotel and I paused in front of that, of the Emmanuel African Methodist church. And mm. it was such a powerful feeling. And at that time there were still, um, police guards guarding the entrances to the church and to their Sunday school. And so the idea that the, the communicants at that church could find it in their hearts to forgive, I think that's such a powerful, powerful notion and a reach and a reach. All right. So now tell me about Savannah. Why Savannah? You know, it's a place that I love and have returned to several times, but tell me what it is about Savannah that you find so evocative. Well, I was scrolling, as we often do, instead of writing, I was scrolling and I came across this cottage and I immediately knew that Jacob was gonna live there. And I didn't have a clue where that cottage was. I just knew that I wanted him to live someplace that was accessible, but yet still far away. Mm -hmm. And when I started doing research on this island, this cottage, what is island, this cottage on the island where this was, I discovered that it was about an hour south of Savannah. And so I said, oh, great, because, you know, who doesn't love Savannah? Who doesn't love to incorporate Santa Savannah into their books? And so because I found that cottage is why I ended up setting the book in Savannah. Hmm. Was it one of the Freedmen's cottages? Cottage on Herd, H I R D Island. Oh, and, it's, okay. and what I love about this island is just very cool. It's only accessible by boat or airplane. So oh. you have to want to go there or have know someone there in order to visit. 
I love oh. that. Very it's cool. a great metaphor for how he was blocking himself from his life by living, you know, remotely in that place. I love that. I love that you said that because that's exactly true. Like nothing in the books that I write are accident. It's all things that's been considered. You know, Sarah lives in Lubeck, Maine, which is the easternmost town in the continental United States. So it was a metaphor for just or symbolic for just how far she was willing to go to get away from what happened. Mm -hmm. And the same with Jacob. He lived there because he wanted to be accessible to his family a little, but still kind of have his own privacy. So that's perfect that you pick that up. Yeah. Well, there are so many fantastic quotes in this novel, but the one that there's one I want to talk about because it seems to be sort of at the heart of Sarah's story. And that is being a mother is a lesson in impossible love. And, um, that just really struck a chord, I think. So how did that influence your story and, and maybe even your own life? Um, I am a step parent. And even from this side, even being a step parent, you just love your child yeah. and you're willing to do anything for them. And that is what I wanted to focus on, knowing that about me and about my friends and family. I wanted that to show through this book. I know it seems like it's a very hard topic to read about, but what I want readers to kind of hone in on is really about a mother's love for her child and what she is willing to do to protect her child. And in Sarah's, you know, being a mother is impossible. You have all this love, you're willing to do anything for your child. But for Sarah, unlike most cases, it's a little bit different. This is a little bit more difficult because you have that sense of wanting to protect them and yet still open her up to new things. And so when she makes a decision to return to Savannah, it's really a tough situation for her because she wants to protect her, but still open her up to new things and meet her other side of the family possibly. And so it's almost an impossible situation. Like how can she win? Like I wanted to feel that pull and pull, that push and pull that she had between hindering her and helping her. And that is what I feel like mothers go through all the time. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. So Turk, can well, I ask you in the minute? Oh, go ahead, Christy, sorry. No, you go ahead, John. Go, John. Yeah. I was just gonna say one of the thing that, things that's so impressive about the book is the um, focus on language and the importance of poetry and your character, Sarah, as a writer, her father owns a bookstore and he only speaks in poems, which sounds very unusual, but you actually put at the end of the book a list of the poems you use, and it seems like you kept finding the perfect poem for the perfect moment, which I imagine took some research, or maybe you have an encyclopedic knowledge of poetry in your head. So I just was mm -hmm. wondering how you came to that idea and then how you made that happen so wonderfully. Okay. Um, so I'm an English major, and of course I studied you know, literature, and and poetry, and a librarian. So I just love poetry. And I knew if I could, I wanted to incorporate some of that um, into my book. Um, the, the character, Jose, Sarah's father, is loosely based on my grandfather, who suffered oh. a stroke, who suffered a stroke whenever I was young. So he lost his ability to speak. But through different ways, through um, sounds and movements, you know, we were able to understand him. And so, but also my grandfather, I believe, could have possibly been on the spectrum. But, you know, back then, you know, they didn't diagnose people with being autistic or ADHD. It's something that, you know, that old generation didn't necessarily be diagnosed with. And so I wanted that to kind of blend into Jose's character a little bit. And I originally started writing. I wanted him to just maybe interject a few poems. But then I said, you know what? Why not? Why not go, you know, just go for it. That's and I let, a few early, I let a few early readers read it and they thought, oh, this works. And so I just went all in. And then in, in regards to the poems, I mean, it may surprise you. A lot of those are first nature to me. I'm a huge Walt Whitman fan. I'm mm. a huge um, William um, Butler Gates fan. So a lot of that was just poems that I knew right off the top of my head. And it's, I assume also being a librarian, that had a lot of influence too on your writing, would you say? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I'm a deputy director of my library, but one of my responsibilities is to purchase all the adult print and digital material from my library system, which consists of three branches in a bookmobile. 
So it requires me to read, you know, a couple hundred books a year just to make sure wow. that I'm not for fun and for research. Wow. <laughs> and so to make sure that we're not that I'm not missing anything. And I also talk to our patrons. You know, I love having conversations with patrons to see what they're interested in, what they want to read. And one of the things that I discovered about my patrons is they love their popular authors, their tried and true authors. They love them. But they were also mentioning and saying things like they wanted some something different. You know, these diverse stories, something new. They love debut authors, mm -hmm. just something that they have not necessarily they can't find easily on the shelf or they've never saw on the shelf before. So I knew I wanted to write a book that really set itself apart and be different from everything else that's out there. Well, yeah, I think you managed to do that. Beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's talk about Jacob. Um, he, you, let's do a deep dive into his point, point of, point of view. <laughs> First Wait. person, what was it like to write from his complicated point of view and his quirky personality? I love this because Jacob, it was when I first started writing, Jacob didn't have a POV. This, oh, and wow. I say this, this was always Sarah's story to tell. And I, I'm unique in, I don't see scenes when I write. I hear voices. And so mm -hmm. as I'm writing, I just, that character of Jacob just was really loud to me. And he was always going to be a part of the story, but not in this particular way. And so he kept coming on very strong. And I just felt like something was missing. And so in Sarah's story, and it was the other perspective, a different perspective that Jacob could offer that we wouldn't see in just a Sarah single POV. And so I realized then that I needed to write two different POVs. And, but I didn't want them to sound the same since, you know, I'm the writer and I was going to have these two characters. So I made Jacob just a little bit quirkier, you know, they're very intelligent, smart. And so sometimes they are socially awkward. And so I wanted that to kind of come across, um, in, in the book. Well, I think you, I think you succeed in that. You show us that Jacob's torn between family and the woman he loves. Now, we don't want any spoilers, but what secrets does he keep and what does he decide to tell? I mean, we, we've said from the beginning, he's the brother, the man who attacked Sarah. Did you know when you started writing about Jacob how this story would end? I did. I have to oh, know wow. the end of the story before I start. And I just kind of write to the end. So I, I knew that. And Jacob, one of the things that I'm most proud about is what how Jacob's character turned out because it allowed me to really dive into even more that idea of grief and how his family processed grief. And um, one of the secrets that he keeps is for a long time is if he should tell his brother and his mother about Alana. And so he, he holds that secret all the way to the end. And he's very conflicted and torn between staying true and honest to Sarah, but also this torn between telling his family because he moved back home to kind of put his family back together. And so he's caught in the middle between Sarah and discovering that he had a niece that he never knew about and being loyal to his family as well. Tough spot, man. Tough spot. Barry, can I? Barry. Can't. Um, I think maybe it was all my years at, as an editor at Cosmopolitan, but for some reason, people always talk to me about their relationships, most often complaining about men. <laughs> um, and I always <laughs> preach forgiveness to people, but um, going back to your point about this whole book about forgiveness, what would you say if you had to give someone advice? Because I often say to people about just it's better to forgive and move on and let go. And people just look at me skeptically, want, they want their revenge. But I don't know, would you have any final words of wisdom about how to forgive someone or how, what to do in your heart to reach a state of forgiveness? I'm just curious. Oh, I love I think that. I think the big, I love this question. I think the biggest thing people need to realize about forgiveness is, is not, is for the person and doing the forgiveness. It's not 
necessarily absolving the person of their sins, of their crimes, of the things that they did wrong, but it is for the person that gives it. And I think a lot of times that definition is often lost. People think that if you forgive, you're forgiving that person. And that's not true. Forgiveness is for the person that's giving it. It is mm. accepting the fact that what happened can't be any different. It's about accepting that, that that's happened and moving and trying to move on the best way you can. And so I think while sometimes people say, oh, I can't forgive, it's because they don't quite, they've not never defined forgiveness for themselves. And it's, it's perfectly fine not to forgive someone. It is. And that's why I wanted to write this book to challenge people. There may be people that read this book and say, nope, I can never do what Sarah did. And that's okay. You know, that's the whole idea is to get people talking about forgiveness and what is forgivable and what's not forgivable. But in order to do that, you first need to define forgiveness and understand that it is not about the person. It is about the person that's giving the forgiveness. Oh, I agree. And if you don't forgive, the person still kind of holds you captive, I think. So, you know, right. they hold your that's heart. Right. And so I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful message, Tara. That's right. Oh, Tara. John, I'm so glad you asked that. Tara, that was, I know I'm going to play that back and listen to it again, because no matter, <laughs> no matter what in our life, even if it's a small, you know, insult by a friend or a family member, I have a lot of them here right now, right? Like to walk around angry about that does us no good. And what do they care? Right? Like it's, it's, right. it's what is the, the um, metaphor? It's like, Drinking poison and, um, you know, thinking you're poisoning them. Expecting the other person will die. Yeah, it's a yeah, very right. That's what I was right. thinking. Drinking poison and yeah. expecting the right. person to right. die. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I think it's the perfect way to end. Tara, we have just so loved talking to you about this powerful, but also really immersive summer read. So even though there's some hard things in it, 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 no one should shy away. It's a beautiful story and set in one of our favorite cities. So before you go, real quick, can you tell our viewers where to find you either on the road or online in the coming weeks? Yes, I have um, two signings that I'm doing in my hometown of Dothan, Alabama. It's Saturday, this Saturday. Um, and I'm doing another one on July 8th. And I can be found online at my name, TaraSHarris.com. Thank you so much for being with us, Tara. Please take care. Congratulations on this beautiful Bye -bye. novel. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. All right, y'all. Gosh, what a couple, what great interviews. I feel, I feel full up. So everybody out there, don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We'll be back next week to celebrate the launch of the Summer of Songbirds. We are so excited. We have the funnest episode in store next week. It might involve whistles. It might involve camp um, trivia. So we cannot wait. So thank you for being with us. And thank you, John, for sitting in. Thank you. So nice to see you. Uh, <laughs> all right. We'll see y'all next you, week. Thank you. Good night. I adore all of you. Bye, John. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.